Hiya. Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. This week, we have a conversation about building standards, or more specifically, retrofit standards. Now, we were delighted to be able to invite Sarah Price, who is the technical author for PAS 2035. Anyone working in low energy building or retrofit in the UK, I'm sure we'll be well aware of what PAS 2035 is. But for anyone who isn't, PAS is, well, it stands for Publicly Available Specification. So it's a, a standardization document. PAS 2035 is for retrofitting dwellings for improved energy efficiency. So it's a, a specification and guidance document for that. As anyone who works with these documents knows, they are magnificent and infuriating. Not necessarily for what they are, often for how they're used. We talk about this within the conversation, particularly in the case of how, in the UK, the, the PAS guidance is tied to state funding, which is amazing in terms of catalyzing the industry and the take-up of the document, but also inhibiting and actually end up having a negative impact on outcomes because it becomes a manual for process rather than delivery. And when I say delivery, I mean the actual outcome. We don't just dig into the detail. The conversation is about humanizing a faceless standard like that. What it is to be the technical author, how these documents come about, how they should be used, and why often they don't work as well as we would like them to. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff as you might imagine if you've listened to us before, just as a heads up for them that can't be bothered listening to us chit-chatting. There's a load of introductory chatter as Jeff and Sarah meet for the first time in ages. Um, we talk about the virtues of Passive House Plus quite a lot. So if you want to skip all of that, jump forward by about probably about 13 minutes, if I remember rightly. It was Full House, me, Dan. Uh, Jeff and Alex. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. I got Lenny, uh, one of our journalists, to who, who has a sort of science background, to go through some of the concepts that get pitched uh, or they, that attach themselves to green building. You know, have you ever encountered ley lines in, in the context of uh, of building design, Sarah? It's mad stuff. Right. Uh, the idea that you have energy fields running through the earth and that you've got negative oh, energy right. fields and, you know, and that if you build your house in the wrong place. It's the sort of stuff you have to include in the past requirements when you're building or retrofitting rather in uh, Glastonbury. <laughs> yeah. Is this That's the same it. thing where cows will stand in the same direction in their field unless they're <laughs> unless they're underneath some electrical wires, in which case it's random? Uh, yeah, yeah. Is that yeah, real? Exactly. You can find that good. To... You've said it now. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it must a new be. doctor, must be so I believe you. Yeah. Yeah. So the technical author of Past Twenty Thirty Five believes some wild shit. <laughs> <laughs> we should find out where she got her doctorate, though. I remember um, Ben Goldacre. <laughs> When um when uh he first encountered he's a kind of hero of mine in terms of uh, if you know know of his work Sarah the journalist and medical doctor Ben Goldacre uh, just many archaic references <laughs> he he uh his whole shtick is applying the principles of evidence based medicine to everything but he he talked to uh when Gillian McKeith appeared on on telly first with her if you've ever heard of her that uh, you are what you eat oh uh, yeah yeah the, the um, Canadian or American poo doctor 
Yeah, yeah. She exactly. was the one who used to get people to yeah. uh, defecate into a takeaway tray and she used nice. to finger her I'm way sorry, through. Sorry, Sarah. God, this is starting really badly. Um, <laughs> anyway, you started recording. You can still opt out if you want. You know. <laughs> no, um, we're well, going was, somewhere with this, Jeff. Yes, I am actually. I am. I think <laughs> so. Um, he saw her talking about how um, sunflower seeds were good for your health because they generate chlorophyll, and he made no, the point. But hang on a second, your stomach that needs sunlight to occur, and your stomach is last time I checked is kind of a fairly dark place, right? Um, so, so what he did was he looked at her. He looked her up. He looked at her deg- her her degree because she was hi. I'm Dr. Julie McKeats, appearing in her lab coat and everything. And he found out that it was from, uh, he found out the university it was from, and it was a non-accredited correspondence course in the States. Um, uh, so he applied successfully for a, a doctorate for his dead cat. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've heard of that. <laughs> so, Sarah, where did you... <laughs> so did you graduate from the University of Arizona? Uh, no, no, no. They're uh, really boring. They're both in the UK. <laughs> Jilly McKeith claimed, Jeff, that a seed contains all of the energy the plant will need to grow. I remember this, and Ben Goldacre said, it needs photosynthesis. It needs heat from the earth, it needs nutrients from the ground, and it needs the sun's rays to grow into any sort of uh, plant. Yeah, She's talking bollocks. Hey, hate those plants, this, this is it. He used it's to say, I think sorry, can I say? It's technically true. It depends on which uh, sort of parameters you're talking about. The first <laughs> few moments of life where it needs energy that's self-contained to actually start the, the germination process, absolutely true. But if you stay, say, in general, it's got all the energy it needs, that's completely wrong. So it's all about, you know... Well, no, it still needs the heat energy. Seeds won't germinate without heat. Yeah, but the heat doesn't generate that much of the energy. The energy just activates it and the energy is all built in. And then very quickly, it starts being able to draw the the nutrients and stuff like that. So it doesn't need photosynthesis to actually do anything. Just it's got enough energy to just get out there and then and then get more energy to grow. Anyway, is this what we're talking about in the podcast? Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about seeds instead. No, uh, I, I'll conclude by saying that because uh, I just enjoyed it. Uh, ben Goldacre used to, when he was talking about her, he'd say uh, Gillian McKeith or to give her her full medical title. Gillian McKeith. <laughs> yeah, you have to check it out. I mean, my doctorate is not relevant to my job now, but I still use it. What's your doctorate in? Detection <laughs> of chemical warfare agents. Yes, quite, with the right. MOD. <laughs> really? Well, I started in nanophysics and I didn't really like that. Um, so I changed to molecular physics and I thought, oh, this will be fun. And then he said, oh, well, we're, we're making detectors for chemical warfare agents and it's all very applied. And I went, yeah, all right, I'll have a go. And I came out of that thinking I need to do something good for the world and went into sustainability. <laughs> <laughs> Thoroughly burned. Yeah, exactly. Never I mean, again. detecting chemical warfare agents sounds like a useful thing uh, in the right Yeah, hands. exactly. Yeah, it's useful. And it wasn't weapons. So I was vaguely happy with that. Protecting people. I mean, I'm not sure how helpful my PhD was, but, <laughs> yeah. you know. So, um, Welcome <laughs> to an, another. Hello. Week. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a few minutes late. I had technical issues. Oh man. Um. Yeah. Cheers for joining us. I think this is going to be interesting. I keep having conversations about which are tangentially or obliquely related to the chat we had the other week, Sarah, about how I had someone complaining about the nature of past 2035 being too restrictive or too slavishly followed on a call this morning. Well, yeah, what do you expect? 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you're always going to get those two happening, aren't you? It's an imperfect... Just ignoring it entirely, treating it as a checkbox. Yes. I mean, this was in a, a sort of training and skills context. Uh, Jeff, I don't know if you read the show notes today. I see them, yeah. I, I, I mean, my eye, they're in front of my eyes. <laughs> oh, you were looking at them. Oh. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I feel vaguely privileged. Broadly today, we're talking about how standards are written and why retrofit shouldn't just be about carbon. But I mean, the reason why we're speaking, Sarah, so we met, I mean, you know, Jeff, I believe, or have you met before? Or have you oh, just... yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, both Jeff a few times or annoyed Jeff a few times. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've met you, but you haven't met me. Yeah. Which is awkward. <laughs> I mean, that does happen. That does happen a lot because I do a lot of teaching. And so they meet me and I don't meet them. Okay. And then they come up to me and go, oh, hi, how are you doing at a conference? And I'm going, I don't know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't spoken enough, um, but I'd say it's getting on for eight, nine, ten years since I first spoke to you. That kind of thing. But I, it's, it's that length of time that I've been aware um, in the various kind of roles you've had since then, that we should be talking more. Um, so it's kind of stupid on you know on my part that 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 hasn't happened. So, um, well, yeah. I've I've grown up on Passive House Plus magazine because I mean I only started in the industry thirteen years ago, you know, and so it was always the thing, the magazine that we had to have delivered, and everybody was talking about it every time it came out. And uh, you know, if you got in Passive House Plus magazine, then yeah, you were doing really well. God. <laughs> Jesus. We've told you, Jeff. Like, Tells you a lot about my background. <laughs> oh, thank you. I think I, I really appreciate hearing that kind of thing, actually, because um, publishing a magazine, it's not like, you know, um, organizing a, a trade show or a conference. You're completely separate from your audience. You know, you're sat in a darkened room working away in the magazine and you send it out into the world and hope that it has an impact. And oftentimes you'll, you know, sometimes people will engage with you, but most of the time from my experience, it's just if you happen to be to bump into someone or be talking to them. And they mentioned that they know it, and they, and they, yeah. and they hopefully don't hold us in con complete contempt. But thank you. That's 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 lovely. It is, it is brilliant. I mean, it comes up in our we have weekly CPDs at Coda, and it comes up quite a lot. People say, "Oh, have you read this article in Plus 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 magazine?" And then there's always a few people who go, "What's that?" And we go, "Oh, haven't you heard? There's a whole <laughs> magazine just for us." <laughs> thank you. Yeah, God, I'm, I'm really flattered. Uh. I, yeah, again, great. and I have to say, when I have when 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 on the occasions when I have these kinds of calls, it reminds me we really redouble our efforts. To, we have to redouble our efforts to make sure that everything we publish is on the money. Because you know, if people are, you have a responsibility. If people are acting, this applies to us, suppose any of us. But if if people are acting based on the information, or if it's informing how they understand buildings, how they the advice they give, how they specify buildings. That's that's a big responsibility. Yeah, absolutely. But people also know that, you know, you're you're representing a project or a way of doing it. You know, you're not sort of setting the standards or whatever. So yeah. I think people learn from it in that way. So I wouldn't worry too much. Okay. Well, there is a risk in there is a degree of credibility. Like I've heard this from other people. It's Jeff scarcely Jeff finds it difficult to acknowledge uh his status within the industry and the esteem with which he's or in which he's held understandably a lot of people do a lot of people do i think that's quite common yeah uh, i don't think you're only one jeff but you are great keep doing well, it <laughs> thank you very much i really appreciate it uh, the feeling of mutual yeah but yeah when you're conferring credibility on a project it is important 
like it's it is quite staggering how much work he puts into it. How much fretting he does about what goes into the magazine. And it gets well, it longer. Across. I mean, because it is all, you know, every word you can tell has been really carefully thought about and put together and it's worth reading. You know, there's no bits of it where you go, oh, they've just filled that. It's, uh, thank you. I mean, it, it gets harder as well over time because the more you learn uh, from talking to people like you, Sarah, um, you, you you see something that an architect has, has said or provided for you or, or, or builder or whatever it might be. And you say, hang on a second, is that right? Um, you know, uh, and you have to interrogate it. And it just, there's just a, a kind of a deluge of, of finicky questions and things that you have to kind of check, you know, um, and um, yeah. it's painful, but it, but it's, but it's great at the same time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Good. I think that's why it appeals to the pacifiers community because that's what our jobs are essentially to ask all those finicky questions and get to the bottom of it all. Pedantic physics-based communications. Yeah. Like my, it, middle, it, my middle name. Yeah, it is. It's the Pedants Journal. Pedant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, shall we get started? So, Jeff, we're going to talk about being the technical author on Past 2035. You know, she doesn't actually author it. All right. So, Sarah, so drawing the Passivas Plus advertorial to a, a sharp close, I think that'll definitely have to go. All right. So, my third go now at saying this, we met in the uh, session where we were talking about the product design for the carbon light building standard. Oh, yeah. Just a quick interruption. We've just started talking about carbon light. Just in case it's unclear, that's not the same thing as PAS. Regular listeners will know carbon light's the AECB's own retrofit standard, which we are very admiring of and positive about. We did an episode about it last year. We talk about it all the time. I'm sure I will have put a link in the show notes. Anyway, back to it. And after Jeff and I met, we both clocked that you were there and that you spoke with such authority and that you too, your voice was sought and heeded very quickly. So we thought we'd better get you on the podcast, especially when Jeff said that you'd been involved in past 2035, because it comes up a lot in all sorts of guises when we're talking to folk. And I don't know. I mean, I didn't know. I'm still quite sketchy on it and how these things are created at all and why they are like they are. So just a quick chat with you sort of put me right. The other thing is, I mean, good building doesn't begin and end with the building standards. We should be thinking about much bigger things or thinking much more broadly, rather. The way you put it was retrofit shouldn't just be about carbon. Well, rather than just put questions here, do you want to give us a bit of background on, on who you are? And then we'll force you to answer that nebulous question. Yeah, sure. Um, who am I? I could be very deep, but uh, no, I won't. <laughs> so I, I've been a passive house consultant for most of my career. So first and foremost, a passive house consultant. Um, and then I slowly but surely got into retrofit. And uh, the ACB was an ACB trustee for three years and helped them develop their retrofit standard. And then Peter Rickaby came along and said, do you want to be technical author of our um, standard for retrofit in the UK? And I went, OK, that sounds scary. Let's do that. So I've been doing that for the last few years as well. And I've been writing guidance for the government uh, on installing retrofit measures like IWI, turn wall insulation and room and the roof insulation, as well as doing all the passive house stuff. Two very challenging areas. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah, two areas where an awful lot goes wrong. Yeah, well, I guess that's why they needed the guidance. They already had one for suspended timber floors, 
And they said, well, we definitely need one for internal wall insulation and room in the roof. And then we did one for solid floor insulation as well. Hoping there'll be an external wall insulation one, but we'll see maybe in the future. Yeah, well, again, you know, uh, you, you can run into issues there, so, so, sometimes surprising issues, some, some horror stories emerging uh, from from uh, some of the more severe climate zones in the UK, I suppose, and, and Scotland and so on in that regard. Yeah, there's some quite high profile external wall insulation failures, aren't there? Yeah, we were talking about Preston again when we're at Homes UK, Jeff. Like, apparently that horror show, a lot of it's still up, like it's not been fixed. They're um, probably trying to decide how to fix it. How best to fix it without spending too much money? Yeah, I guess the question is where the liability lies. And uh, I mean, these things are terrible adverts for retrofit, of course, the longer they're up. um, broader problem. Uh, We we can include a link to it in the show notes, but it was, um, we talked about it in the, in the mag before case to selling court wrote a piece for us in the mag, which the BBC picked up on. um, And they, they, they did a report on it. Um, um, But you had a, a, an external installation retrofit to, I think, social housing under the eco, uh, energy company obligation scheme. And, um, some of the work, it's just, it's like if you were trying to, 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 if you set an exam question to somebody, you know, how would you do, uh, how would you screw up an external installation job as badly as possible? That, you know, that, that's the kind of answer you would have come up with. It was stuff like, um, the, 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 the one that really got me was, um, finishing the external installation because there was an ornate uh, fascia board um uh, on this brick on these brick clad buildings finishing the the external installation about a f- half a foot or so below that um flashing directly to the brick so you've got this wonderful op- brick is like a sponge um liter- almost literally um so uh, ha- having this uh, ability for rain to get in uh, uh above uh the external installation and sit in behind it it's just behind yeah Beautiful. I mean, we we teach that that we show that detail actually in the pacifiers course. We teach it, and we say don't do this, and uh, it, it sort of says, oh, it's from a best practice external wall insulation guide. So I had a quick Google to see if I could still find it, and it's still on the internet. What this best practice external wall insulation guide with that detail in, and I think this is part of the problem with the industry. We do have a new external wall insulation guide now, where the details are much better. And there's some some of the organisations have been working really hard on trying to improve the external wall insulation details. But that document is still available. I mean, this That's was the, this was the point that you were making where you were trying to uh, lead me away from just uh, bollocking on about a building standard, in that, uh, or just focusing on decarbonisation. In that, when we think about retrofit, we need to be thinking about the quality of the building that we do, like. That that is as essential to anything else in terms of all the 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 benefits that come out of retrofitting people's homes, uh, you know, quality of life, health, uh, and also just raising expectations. But like, was wasn't that actually just basically people who just did? I mean, sorry, but did they just do a shit job? And I'm being very naive saying this, but from what you're describing, Jeff, this sounds like someone who just does not care, or if they did my god like what and therefore they're doing just following to the letter something where with a bit of logic you can see that the water is going to go in behind and completely ruin the whole thing yeah it's it, you're right i mean uh it, it's it's very hard to get your head around how that could be accepted signed off on or whatever it's it just the, the amount of people who would have to be ignoring or turning a blind eye and the frustrating thing for me with that external insulation when done properly 
is absolutely one of the best measures that you can do for a building, in, in particular in, in the context of a retrofit. I mean, obviously you need to assess it on a case-by-case basis, but it's. would you agree, Sarah, that it should be harder to get external insulation wrong than internal wall insulation, um, if, you, if you have your wits about you? You would you? think so. Yeah, you would think so. And I, I think it's just, we come from a different world. You know, we come from a world of low energy buildings and doing it right and passive house. And so for us, we look at something that, that like that and go, how can anybody not understand? But actually, there is a really low level of knowledge and understanding of moisture in buildings in the industry and basic building physics and understanding how buildings are put together. And therefore, things are done because they're, I don't know, part of a system, for example. Oh, the system's got that detail, so it must be fine. And then we just install it. And nobody asks, thinks to ask any questions because uh, that's just what you do. So I think one of the major challenges we've got is upskilling and upskilling designers, upskilling installers, upskilling retrofit assessors, the whole industry in build, basic building physics, essentially. That also speaks to another issue here, which is upskilling is important, but you have much better resilience in an industry to catch and deal with things like this if the culture is different, if if people within the industry understand that the idea of just blindly accepting um, what a detail, for instance, and and delivering it, rather than thinking, hang on, we're just looking at it and thinking, you know, uh, is this, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe architects wouldn't like this if you've got uh, tradespeople turning around saying to them, hang on, you've got it wrong, you know, assuming there is an architect even involved in the project. But it feels to me like, like and maybe that would come naturally from having kind of a better building physics knowledge. You know, I don't know, but that, that piece feels to me like it would be very important to enable people to not just be going through the motions, taking this information without questioning it um, and, and thinking, is this right? And what can we do to improve it if not? I think you're right. I mean, also, I just said very quickly that it seems like we should be having something like, you know, the Where's Wally game, you know, where you have to look for the detail, find find Wally in the image. Like sometimes you just have to give people some simple sort of logic exercises to go, does this even look right? It's like, just use your common sense. Like, does this look right? You've got a, a bare minimum of understanding of training. Is this acceptable? And I think that's the starting point. You're absolutely right, you're absolutely right Sarah, that we need to have absolutely more skills and more people in the industry and we need to talk about it more. But sometimes I think we have to de- demystify things and just come back to common sense sometimes. And I know it's a complicated subject, but it has to start with some simple truths, a simple you know, I'd call it a culture shift to come back to what you said, Dan, as well about you know focusing on culture. We have to get into a frame of mind of doing things in certain ways so that then you can apply the more complex things. This lends itself to, I mean, what you said, so building on what Alex referenced, like there's a culture in the UK of shite work. Not everywhere, obviously. There are loads of people who are really serious about it, uh, particularly in the passive house community. And it's not only passive house, like other people do good work as well. But there is an acceptance that there has been a long-term race to the bottom in terms of building specification and expectation. So of the people doing the work, the expectation is not for them to carry out the best possible work. It's for them to meet the targets they were given, which are usually time and or money. We, we know that Irish retrofit contractor who... Set up in the UK, got past 2035, trained up, lasted six months, didn't quite make out the year before they pulled out because they couldn't compete with the shoddy work that UK contractors were carrying out because it meant that they were priced out of jobs and no one seemed to care about the outcome. I mean, the way 
how did you put it? I've got this written down. The way you put it to me the other day was everyone in Germany knows what uh what's me now? That's it. I was gonna say TVR, but that's the, the <laughs> yeah, performance yeah. car <laughs> from Blackpool. Yeah, yeah. So, so I was saying my I was gonna say it does come a lot from the clients as well, and it comes down to money too. You know, clients say they want uh, quality and they want all these things, but they don't really mean it because they don't want to pay for that. In some cases, they do. Uh, so I remember when I did my garage conversion, which was not difficult. You know, it wasn't passive house. I did it to building regulations, U values. And uh, I spoke to several contractors. Few of them wouldn't quote for me because I talked about air tightness and thermal bridges. And I know that because they went back to a friend and said, oh, she was asking me for all these things that, you know, too complicated and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I eventually went for a conservation builder uh, because he understood a bit about air tightness and thermal bridging, you know, cold bridging. And he was happy to follow my designs, essentially. And he said, well, but we want details. I want drawings. And that was great coming from the track. So I did some drawings. and. We got to the bit where uh, we had to install uh, insulation of a certain thickness on internal wall insulation. And I was meeting building regs, U-values for retrofit, and they he could not get hold of a fixing long enough. So, uh, you know, the way I designed it to meet building regs, he, he couldn't build it like that. So we had to come up with a different way. And he was really good at, at, at this. But I just think, you know, if the industry is not set up, to even meet building regulations in retrofit, I, I don't understand what's going on, you know. And and probably most clients don't even know that they're not meeting building regs because, you know, well, I suspect that we're just putting on less insulation and going, oh, we doesn't meet the fifteen year payback period, so therefore we can get away with it. It's there's something I don't understand about um about UK in this context. Um, uh, in Ireland, uh, while building regulations apply, as I'm sure they do in England and, and across the UK too, um. Uh, apply to renovations as well. We have we have a very very slim down building control system compared to the UK. Anyway, I know you've got lots of calls for complaint about about state of building control in the UK, but we we uh, have always gone the self certification route in the past. Um, so the architect, or engineer, or surveyor certifies that the building complies with building regulations, um, and presuming the the client doesn't opt out of 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 that requirement. Um, which they can do with with self builds in terms of new homes, um, you know, and building control have a duty to inspect twelve to fifteen percent of new homes, right, or new buildings, right. Um, so that that could be one inspection um, in, in total of of twelve to twelve percent of new homes, even. Um, but with but with existing homes, you know, it's not like you have um, unless it's very substantial works being done. You know, you know, building control would never even be aware. Of the vast majority of jobs that are actually happening, um, mm. because there's no kind of uh, commencement notice required or anything like that. Um, so, is that is that the setup in the UK too? Is that why we have this? Is that part of the reason why we have this mess? Um, I don't know what proportion of of homes would go for planning. I mean, we had to for a garage conversion because we were doing yeah quite a lot of works. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's a it's a proportion of your house. I think that's the way they do it, sort of certain percentage of your house but if you're doing internal wall insulation you know how, how are they ever gonna find out <laughs> but i would have thought if you're doing something as substantial and as expensive as wall insulation you'd be informing building control 
but maybe that's just me because I'm goody two shoes. I mean, the, the, it could be the British people generally are more likely to do that than Irish people. Maybe, maybe it's a British thing. Yeah. You you love to queue and all that. Um, we yeah. um, in in Ireland, we have a as one official put it to me uh, when I was querying him on on almost zero compliance with a, with a, a new regulation that he was he was responsible for for enforcing. Uh, his response to me was that Jeff, you have to remember that in Ireland we have a very culturally relaxed attitude to the law. Which I think yeah. is a, is a, a legacy of our uh, us throwing off the shackles of our colonial. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Like the appearance of professionalism is not valued in the same way it is in the UK. My experience of Ireland. I mean, look at Bertie Ahern. Jesus, your yeah. premier for as many years. Like a, a, he came across as much like a, a car salesman yeah. as a premier politician, and that is a, an asset. You know, you get down to the southern counties and, you know, the, the the presentation, you don't have the same sort of RP, uh, receive pronunciation. Yeah. Or like the codified upper strata. I mean, you do a bit in Dublin, that yeah. strangled weird Dublin accent that the professional classes exhibit. But yeah, man, I think sort of what we're talking about here is these are, these are the manifestations in the UK specifically of the fact that the whole building industry, it is the outcomes of anything that happens within the building industry tend to be geared towards favoring the industry rather than the the people who are going to live in or exist in the buildings that are being built. You know, I characterize it as assets are built to be bought and sold, but I mean, even down to, oh, perfect. Yeah, this is a segue back into past 2035. Like, <laughs> Even down to the regs, like why we have we, it. Yeah. Regulations may be initiated or established with the best possible intentions, but once they've been through the machine, like the machine of state and empire, Jeff, we are very sorry for colonialism still. They they come out quite a different thing. So, like in terms of that process, why don't we start at the beginning? So as a technical author, yeah. Like, what is that? What is past what is 2035? It? I mean, uh, I had all these questions when I started off as technical author. <laughs> so um, a few years ago now, we had a review called Each Home Count, or the, otherwise known as the bon, Bonfield Review. And there are a number of recommendations that come out of that review. Uh, one of them, so, so the retrofit steering task group was set up in order to try and help instigate some of these recommendations in the industry. And they set up the uh, a, the idea to have a suite of standards um, for retrofit, starting with PAS 2035. So that would be the core and PAS 2038 for a non-domestic retrofit. They would be the core sort of retrofit processes, which would take into account all the learnings from each home count and everything we learned about the retrofit industry and what was happening in domestic retrofit. And they would be put into a new retrofit process that everybody would have to follow if they wanted government funding, essentially. And then what happens then is it's written by not just one person, but a steering group of industry representatives. And so you end up with these great long meetings. I mean, I can only imagine what it was like the first time they wrote it, but they are hours, hours and hours and hours of meetings. And they, of course, they were all in person before COVID. So you'd be sitting in a meeting room all day discussing one table 
of you know apparently that table that that lists the 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 relative risks of each of the measures so i don't know if you know every measure has got a risk from 1 to 3 three being the highest risk one being the lowest risk so apparently that took in itself several days in order to be able to put those measures in into each of those risk categories this is from peter rickaby telling me about this so so you can see how it's not just what technical bods like me would like to see in the standard. It has to be negotiations with the industry and it has to be, it has to work for everyone. We're, even with the amendments to the standards that I'm doing at the moment, they go through, they're all done by steering group again. So we've got sort of 15, 20 people who I have meetings with and they, we discuss what goes in there. Then it goes out to public consultation and we get, I think that's, you know, several hundred comments back. We have to go through every single comment and give a response to it one by one. And, and decide you have to them? You, you know, can you be very glib in your response or do you have to, to, uh, cause I've seen I that. I try not to be. <laughs> you know, basically I've seen, I've seen when they, uh, should, I should be careful about what I say now, uh, but I've seen, um, responses to, uh, government consultations. I won't say where and when. Um, with regard to building regulations and seeing the responses that the officials had to each submission. And in some cases, I remember um, very well-researched and considered uh, submissions uh, and, the, and the, you know, being included in the officials' responses, disagree, and then, uh, you know, no action taken. <laughs> Simple as it's that. It's really you know? hard. Yeah, it's it's very, very difficult because you have so many to respond through. And yeah. also that that response is not just from me, it's from the steering group. So, they, you know, it's all got to be agreed. So there are, there will be a lot where you just have to go, it's out of scope this time. You know, it's out of scope, we'll sort it out next time or disagree. I think in one case I had to write, unfortunately, this person hasn't read past 35. Because, yes. yeah. <laughs> I mean, they had some really valid points, but they were already in there, already in past 2035. So. Yeah, but we have to read them all. We have to read them all in you their know, entirety. I think that is the fundamental problem, and I'm I suffer from this too sometimes. And it's a problem for the for the industry generally, uh, for the good part of the industry. People who think they're very clever, you know, and like to sound their own voice, oftentimes can be, and maybe if they're time starved as well, that doesn't help things. But actually, reading, uh, I know Dan's going to be guffawing at this from coming from me, but uh, listening to what 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 other people are saying and uh, and responding to that rather than just going off on a, a with a, r a rambling missive or wh whatever the missive might be you know to to ventilate points that you want to get across uh, is it's a fundamental problem i think probably I, it seems like it's more of a male problem than a female problem i don't know yeah but oh i don't know i think i'm guilty of that definitely <laughs> there's, there's been the odd consultation where i've just gone oh i need to talk about this they need to do this whether it's relevant or not <laughs> I'd add the word sprawling into that description, yeah. Jeff, as well. <laughs> it's not just rambling. It's just one thing leads to another, which is part of the issue, particularly with something like retrofit, because everything is connected and it's all much more complicated than you, than one would like it to be. Yeah. But you've touched on this point, Sarah, which is really important, which, um, you know, what you're dealing with with something like past 2035 as a building physicist is not just building physics. It's the interface between, you know, a building physics informed approach to writing standards and politics, basically, I suppose, you know, um, because you have different uh, stakeholders engaged uh, in the process who've got different. I remember Peter Rickaby talking about this 
um, at the time uh, the, the Pastor in 35 was first being completed, I think, and he was absolutely aghast. I think he wrote about this in the magazine actually at the time. Um, at some of the, I think the ventilation industry in particular, he had he had real issues with 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 some of the uh, the the uh, fighting that was being done to kind of water down uh, what what the, what the standard was trying to do. So was yeah, that, absolutely. So is that still at the steering committee stage, Jeff, or is that by the time you get an industry involved? No idea. I, I, I don't know. Sarah would be more. I mean, the steering group is formed of um, different representatives from the industry. So, you know, we try and have, if there's some major changes in ventilation, we have someone representing ventilation industry. So you will have those representatives on the steering group. Uh, and yeah. The, the the idea is well the idea then they had even more members of the steering group actually because they had past 2030 already so that was sort of 20 people and then they had past 2035 this new standard and they brought them together so you had 40 or 50 people so when i first started doing it we had about 50 people on the steering group and we got nothing done and the, you know the first amendment oh, I, nothing went through we just so, couldn't get anything through there was no agreement how are you supposed to how are you supposed to author anything meaningful? Like I've worked on annual reports, like a corporate annual report. And the number of voices that you have to include in that uh, document, just where you're managing the production of it, it is an unholy cacophony of competing voices asking for, much as you said, changes to be made that have already been addressed and asking for changes that contradict the other changes that are requested in the same document. Like, oh man, it's unbearable. And that's yeah. never been, you know, 50 people. It, it was very hard. And um, BSI made the decision to um, reduce the steering group down to just have industry representatives in certain sectors, all of them, but just one in each of all of the sectors. Um, so that was... A really good decision, I think, and and the steering group are a lot more functional now than they were, um, and you know they they still ask all the right difficult questions, but it's it's uh everybody is you get consensus basically now. So without naming names, does that make it easier to mitigate? I don't know the loudest voice in the room, the. Uh... The people who hold influence who may need placating. I think the problem is if you've got several representatives of an industry, for example, and they want something in particular, what happens is you 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 make a statement and you go, right, we want to make this change. And then they end up having a conversation between themselves, the four or five of them in the steering group, saying why they don't think it's a good idea and backing each other up and backing each other up and backing each other up and you know, and and just saying the same thing. Um, and then it feels like it's really difficult for the rest of the steering group then to argue against that. Um, whereas if you've got one person and they then say why they're not happy with that and you go, okay, that's fine. Let's, let's, why don't we think about this then? The rest of the steering group can then sort of get involved in the conversation, have their say. Um, so yes, you're exactly right, Dan. It, it's about, um, trying to balance the voices in the group rather than having a small group of people dominating the conversation. Shall we talk about how past 2035 is good for a bit <laughs> as well? 
<laughs> well, yes. I tell you what, I have seen real uh, movement in terms of quality, actually, because of Pulse 2035. Now, I haven't seen all projects and I haven't, I've heard horror stories and I've heard of terrible retrofit coordinates and all the rest of it. But in the projects I've been working on, we have been looking at air tightness. We have been looking at thermal bridging. We've been looking at surface temperature factors. We've been doing all those good building physics things. We've been looking at moisture because of PAS 2035 and all the things that it says. So the industry is also responding. So we've seen, I've mentioned the EWI guide that they've been working really hard on. And we've got new details now in response to past 2035, you know, the fact you need to have reduced thermal bridging. So we're having better details coming out and better understanding of uh, cold bridging. Certainly air tightness, I think, is getting there, but that'll take a while. But, you know, it, it, I'm not going to pretend it's the best quality in the world. It's not passive house standard yet, but it's improving. I suppose this is where we, understanding where there is room for progress enables you to push for progress. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 20, 2035, by the way, that's that, that's nothing to do, that, what does that mean? It's nothing to do with the year. In other words, we don't have to do anything until 2035. I wonder whether some people think... I have no idea why it's past 2035. I don't know why they gave it that number. I think I that's, yeah, uh, you, you think, I, I don't know who, who puts the time into naming these things, but. So I'm looking, into that. I'm looking <laughs> at the, the PAS Wikipedia page and I only just learned what PAS oh, stands for. Page. Yeah, yeah. Publicly no. available specification. That's right. Yeah. It's not actually a standard. It is just some words, <laughs> yeah. just a guideline. And I think the number, the, the numbering is sequential in a chaotic and unmanageable form. So PAS, PAS 77 is IT Service Continuity Management Code of Practice. And then you can go to PAS, the one that precedes it, PAS 72 is Responsible Fishing. See, that's fine. Of good practice for fishing vessels. Oh, very, very good. I'll take note of that. Yeah, very. Yep. Um, but, um, no, but I'm um, my point. 105, recovered paper sourcing and quality, code of practice. So all the big stuff. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. It's, we're just unfortunate that we have, uh, we, we operate in an area where the, the passes, uh, like 2013, 2035, are close enough to, to where we are now in, in terms of the year we're, we're in, that the industry, anyone... It's uh, isn't it? Well, someone who, who who hasn't properly engaged could think that it could, it could give them the impression that we don't need to worry about it yet for a few years. <laughs> Who, who is who is supposed to worry about this? And as in, I mean, now, like, who's who's this for? Past twenty thirty five. It's for anybody working on projects that are funded by the government, and I mean, anybody can adopt past twenty thirty five. Anybody can choose to, you know, local authorities, individuals, whatever. But government funding, it all at the moment goes through past twenty thirty five. Okay, has to follow yeah. that process anyway. Is, and is, that, that, all, is that all of UK? That. Is that just England, or is that all of UK? Um, I guess I guess it's well. I don't know where the funding's wherever the funding's available. I guess it's all of UK. I think it's UK wide, but the funding itself manifests in different ways. So when we were working with uh, folk up in Scotland on some uh, promotional technical documentation, it was tricky sometimes talking about past twenty thirty five 
in an entirely positive manner. We, in f- we kept finding ourselves with limitations as to what what the client wanted us to actually say because past twenty thirty five, hood. Let's just call it past for now. Uh, created barriers to doing the best possible work because not all the guidelines are relevant in all situations. But because of the sort of the because of the chimeric manner in which a document like this becomes uh, assembled, you're not going to be able to account for every single individual circumstances. And if, if as we've discussed, quality or the lack of quality is a sort of general issue in the UK building industry, not everywhere, obviously, sorry, just preceding any offence I might be causing, this is a way of keeping people on track by tying the funding itself to the delivery of a particular standard. But yeah. that precludes some of the significant changes that do need to be made. So I think we've all spoken about this, the need for building designers to be involved in the process as a matter of the need for building designers, the need for designers to be at the center of the process because they've got the the public liability insurance to be able to shoulder the responsibility often um that's the point it's about a fixing responsibility you know. and accountability yeah like responsibility without accountability is meaningless yeah but it also it so this was the, you used the example of aerogel like shdf funding where if i do you want to explain it i'll, I'll just garble a half remembered thing based on a single word i remember <laughs> Well, there's loads, there's loads of stuff in what you were just saying, actually, about past twenty thirty five and how it's not always appropriate for every situation. And I was quite amazed by how sort of spoon fed uh, it was the way it was written. You know, it was sort of very much it puts all of the measures into a certain risk category, it puts all the different types of buildings in different risk categories. There's no, there's no kind of you, you have to do a risk assessment and decide how risky this project is. It, it's just it tells you tells you how risky your project is. Uh, it tells you exactly what to do and how to do it. And I think if it were down to me, um, I tend to put more faith in people and say, use your common sense, but think about these things. And I, I, I hope that's where we're heading. I hope that's, you know, when we get the skills and the knowledge and the people caring about their work, when we get that sorted, then we'll be able to write the standard to go, okay, this is the process, but we're going to leave a lot more of it to you. Maybe we need an approach where we have something like this as a fallback uh, yeah. uh, in the absence of that kind of expertise, um, but that we place the emphasis first and foremost on developing expertise and recognizing it and making people with expertise, putting them at the front and center and, and allowing them to circumvent these requirements if they know better, frankly. you know. Yeah, I mean, that was the idea of the retrofit coordinator was that you get, you've got this training that's specific to retrofit. So you've got somebody in there who knows all about retrofit, but the industry responded in a very different way to to what I think people were originally expecting in that the, the retrofit coordinator, although it's written as a separate qualification, a separate role, we we're anticipating that it would be taken on by the retrofit designer or the retrofit installer so that they improve their knowledge. But we've now got this new person in who's adding extra expense, of course, to all of the retrofit projects because they have to get a retrofit coordinator to come on board and do all the stuff. And it's it that's challenging. And the industry are sort of 
going, well, we can't afford to do this under past 2035 because we've got to pay for a retrofit assessor, a retrofit coordinator, a retrofit designer. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> we thought that, that one person might go and get those qualifications, not six. <laughs> oh, unintended consequences, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can't foresee these things. But I suppose that is partly because of the way PASS is written. You know, it's written with roles and qualifications. And I think actually it would be much better when we can talk about competencies and the process more rather than, um, you know, specifically who does what. The poor retrofit coordinator, like such an important role, but so ill-defined. I was talking about this with uh, Jonathan Burke. Hey, Jonathan, he's a listener, so shout out. <laughs> it is a curse to be a retrofit coordinator because you have responsibility without accountability, but you're made to feel like you have accountability for all sorts. And because so few people actually understand what the role of a, a retrofit coordinator is, you suddenly become responsible for all sorts of management, specification, mediation. And in some people's eyes, you become responsible for the, the quality of the end delivery, where all you can do is really traffic people into the right channels to try and deliver the best possible results at the end. Retrofit coordinators as people traffickers. I hadn't thought of that. No. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure I understand what a retrofit coordinator does. And I think that's because it's not, it's not really a role in its own right. It's a past 2035 role. But in terms of the project, the way the industry is using it is a sort of a, it's a checkbox type exercise and really what we wanted was the ret somebody with the retrofit coordinator qualification to be the center of the retrofit project to be either the project manager or the architect or the the installer you know whoever it may be they they are absolutely key to making that project a success and making sure it complies with PAS 2035 but unfortunately we're seeing both ends of the spectrum yeah, I always imagine them being some sort of guru on site, you know, who who had all the answers and could go up to them and ask them for, you know, like a bit like an oracle and come up with all the answers, yeah. to all the retrofit questions you may have, so that it all goes absolutely perfectly. But I guess that's not the case yet. No, and and you get all sorts of people from all sorts of different backgrounds going through the retrofit coordinator course. So you might have somebody who just uh, who who just knows about installing boilers. And, you know, is not a fabric expert, but they do get taught stuff about fabric, but often it's sort of, it's not within their they skill. Have a, they have a distinct leaning towards certain parts of the project rather than others. It feels, it feels <laughs> like, and I don't know whether I'm, uh, I'm, this is useful or not, but you kind of want to start in a position where you look at, um, take one of the best case examples, like, um, you know, a certified passive house designer or whatever, somebody who really knows their stuff. Um, if they're taking on a retrofit project, what does the process look like for them? You know, actually talking to them and 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 do um, things like past twenty thirty five when they come along. Um, you know, obviously with the promise of of access to funding for for a public project, for instance, uh, if, if that's the case, if that's the, if that's the kind of scenario we're looking at. Does something like past twenty thirty five make life harder for them? Does it stop them from doing the things that they that they would otherwise be recommended to do? Does it pull them away from best practice? Um, and you know, how, if so, how, how do you fix that? You know, the, the, to me, the, to me, it should be 
any system that's created should should be able to to deal with those kinds of scenarios and, and at, the, at a very minimum make sure that you're in trying to drag up the the lowest common denominator element um make sure that you don't stop best practice too you know yeah i think the things that um frustrate me slightly about the whole the whole sort of past 2035 thing is is stuff that's already been set up around past 2035 the past 2035 doesn't say and people assume that it is past 2035 doing that so um the the industry is is set up and i'm still trying to understand this uh so i'm not claiming to be an expert on it so that um really you need to have a warranty or a guarantee for the products that you're installing or the system you're installing uh under if if you want to get that registered under trustmark under the past 2035 scheme but that's not defined by past 2035 that's defined by the certification bodies or trustmark i'm not quite sure where it comes from to be honest but that in in itself is basically stifling design architect design i would say architect led design so they are having to rely on existing systems existing products with the right warranties and guarantees for use in that specific situation so that aerogel example that dan was talking about earlier is exactly that so an architect came to me and said i've been told i can't use aerogel under this shdf scheme i just need it's the right product this little bit of internal wall insulation you know we can do all the modeling to show it's the right thing but i can't install it because it doesn't have the warranty or the guarantee for being installed in that situation so for the second week in a row, we are talking about you, SHDF. You are letting us down. Um, because I suppose what I find really, I don't find it really funny, uh, not even peculiar. I find it really normal is that the thing never ends up being about the thing. Like, so I, I've got this Wikipedia page still open. So pass 2035, 2030, retrofitting dwellings for improved energy efficiency, specification and guidance. So if that is the bit that is tied to SHDF funding, we're spending more time mithering about the means of getting there than the outcome. We're spending more time looking at the detail of the process than monitoring the performance. So you can hit all the right notes on your way there, but you know how much of any of this is checking whether the money that was spent were Well, that, that was one of the recommendations that came out of each home council that's been written into PAS 2035 is that when you get to the end of the process, you've got to go back and check whether you've met your intended outcomes, whether you've met your things that you you, you said you were going to achieve at the outset. And yeah, so you have to do a sort of really basic monitoring, which could be as simple as a walk around and an interview with the occupant. But if you find anything wrong out of that or that needs further investigation, then you need to go on to metering and monitoring of the situation whether that's adequate or not is a debate a, a big debate in the industry so we need to make the process as, as affordable as we can for everybody so it's fine if you want to do a walk around and a short interview with the occupant but is that really going to tell you whether you're not going to have any under, unintended consequences it can take years for moisture problems to arise and if that's one of your intended outcomes you know that i want to get rid of my damp and mold problems you can't say that within three months but you need that project signed off so you can get the funding yeah. so it's a real problem well, um, this this is why you need the third party this is like that 
apoc- apocryphal quote that I thought it was Mark Twain, but I found out it's a fellow called Upton Sinclair. It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on not understanding it. And similarly, if you're asking builders to mark their own homework, and in order to get paid for doing the work they've done or get the next job, they've got to get top marks. What are they going to do? Yeah, it's the problem if it all depends on the funding. Yeah, I went around. We had a chat. He didn't. He didn't tell me. He said there were no problems. He said actually that it was really good and the site was really tidy at the end. And he was surprised by how charming we all were. It all needs. It all needs a lot more sort of third party intervention. Actually, it needs someone with some teeth to actually go around checking people. Well, that's why we have certification bodies and Trustmark. So that's their role to check a percentage of what all their members are doing, essentially. And there are some brilliant certification bodies out there now who are putting together some really robust processes, having been burnt in the past by bad retrofits, you know, and having to sort them out. They are they really want their members to be good, you know, and doing doing retrofits right. So they're putting together, like I say, robust processes to say, right, we're going to check X, Y, Z and making it really clear to them members so that they know what to expect. Do they have teeth? Well, yeah, because then you get, if you if you don't, you know, meet the standards, then you get chucked off the certification scheme. Right, and then yeah. you, can't, you can't provide um, installations under government-funded schemes. Oh, well, that sounds good. Yeah, what role, what in theory. Yeah. <laughs> what role do you see for the for the ACB's uh, carbon light retrofit standards in, in these regards? You know, with- oh, well, that's brilliant. <laughs> I would say that because I helped write it. I think that that is coming from completely the other end of the spectrum in the sense you are you're using people who really care about retrofit. They care about low energy buildings. They come from the passive house world to help uh, retrofit buildings uh, to a certain standard. And so that's why that works, because the retrofit coordinators, you know, the equivalent of Pulse 2035, are your AECB certifiers or your ACB modelers, and they are all from the passive house world, you know, and so they want, they've absolutely got that quality ingrained in them already. So you're you're taking a different tact, I think. You're going right. These are the people that are going to make those projects work. So you don't need all of that kind of third party checking, etc., because that one person is driving this project. You've got the nerds running it. You got the nerds. Exactly. Yeah. That's all well and good until Carbon Light becomes a massive success. So for anyone who doesn't know about it, Carbon Light's the AECB's new standard or yeah, uh, for retrofit and new build. They are harmonizing all of their building standards under the Carbon Light brand. But the version we're talking about uh, is the Carbon Light retrofit standard, which is in echoing the Passive House step-by-step or stepwise method of retrofitting like the benefit or component certification route to benefit yeah yeah um it is built on step one creating a, a heat pumpification style platform where you get the house up to a basic foundational standard on which you can build really serious deep retrofit so the first phase gets you up to heat pump viability or maybe uh, yeah heat pump viability will do and then you can take it where you want to go. So focusing on health and efficient energy efficiency, decarbonization, whichever angle you want to you want to flex on. Jeff is really excited about this. 
were really keen on it. I think, oh man, I think it is brilliant. And I think it's particularly brilliant because it can be picked up by all sorts of people. Like I'm talking about it with all sorts of folk now that we speak to. And everyone, people's eyes light up when you explain to them, it's achievable. <laughs> so what Kit Knowles said about, not Kit Knowles, uh, who was it? It is a first step that almost anyone can achieve to making a difference. Like you can get a heat pump in your home with carbon light and it isn't onerously expensive, which fabric first dogma can feel a bit alienating because how deep should we go? Well, you don't have to just crack on. I don't, yeah, I I don't necessarily associate fabric first with deep retrofit. I just think it's reducing your, reducing your demand, you know, and you can do it to whatever level you can afford, but do it well, do it with good building physics. But yeah, equally, you can go straight to the full carbon light without, you don't have to do it step by step. You can just go for the whole shebang straight away. That's important too, but I I think it's very useful to give people it becomes more accessible to people if they feel there's a place for them within this that they can start their building on a journey and then and hopefully they have a positive enough experience if they only go you know to the first step essentially initially that they understand that they're on a journey and they and they understand what they need to do next you know yeah absolutely i think i'm doing my backwards though i'm doing fabric first and then i'll do heat pump eventually i don't think that's backwards that would normally be the way to do things. <laughs> well, that's but the ACB says step oh, yeah. one is yeah, yeah. heat pump. So I'm doing it backwards from the ACB. So insulation and an open, it's not an open fire is that you have? No, 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 no. It's a, it's closed. Okay. Well, We've got some... cavity wall insulation. We had Q-Bot, which I know you don't like spray foam insulation, but we had Q-Bot well, coming through the doors. I'm trying to be pragmatic. I said anything. I wasn't allowed to talk about it. No, no, I don't. No, you can. You absolutely can and should. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about it. Set up an argument. Get them bickering. Yeah. I, I, uh, so, so we should explain what it is. So, so, so uh, you, sorry. You, you should take care of that if you're if you're happy to explain what Qbot is and what it does. Yeah. So Qbot is a very cool technology. It's a little robot that goes underneath your suspended timber floor, and then a guy sits outside on your driveway with a a Game Boy controller type thing and a screen and he drives the robot around on your floors and it sprays um, insulation underneath your floor joist and uh, we've got a bungalow so nice big floor area uh, to do and so they came and did that under the Green Homes grant very lucky to get in there before it closed yeah uh, I mean uh, it's interesting I've talked to Andy Simmons the CEO of the ACB for our listeners um, about this in the past about spray foam um, and we used to uh, have advertising on spray foam for years but it was only when um, I don't know if you saw that piece Kate that uh, wrote for us Sarah um, a few years ago on um, on health effects from spray foam insulation uh, off gassing from spray foam you know w- once it reaches relatively high temperatures uh, well I say relatively high 20 it was 28 29 degrees or something like that there was high off gassing a couple of years after it was applied so that was one Thing that gave us significant pause for thought and the fact that spray foam manufacturers didn't really have answers for us when we put those questions to them uh other than one of the one of the the manufacturers or, or rather manufacturers representative said to us uh if you put spray foam into our building it'll never get to those temperatures so there's no 
issue. And I don't think that's true, frankly. Uh, quite clearly, it's not true. So that's one issue. Um, and then in the roof space, there is the issue as well. Some spray foam being promoted where it's applied directly, you know, you know between the, the, the roof timbers um, directly to the underside of the slate, for instance, or to the roofing felt. Um, or on a high resistance underlay or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And there have been, there've been horror stories there of, um, of roofs kind of rotting, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah. um, but Andy would be of the view and it's, it's this kind of nuance is one of the things I love about the ACB actually. Uh, his, I suspect you share similar kind of thinking, Sarah, that, um, rather than being dogmatic and saying, you know, getting 100% behind one thing and, and, and dismissing something else, he's saying, well, actually, maybe it's a bit more complicated than that. Maybe there are contexts in which, it's a good problem-solving product, you know. So I don't know if that's if that's the thinking here, or or, or, or what's your defence? I approach it. Yeah, I don't. Um, I I love natural products, and I'd love to specify them all the time. Choose them, you know. I I will prioritise them, but equally, I think there's so much retrofit to do that it's good to consider everything and give it a chance and chance to get better and keep asking questions. So exactly the same as you, you know, I was asking QBot about what their, what the spraying agent was that they were using and, you know, were they going to change it to something with lower global warming potential, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So, um, oh, hey, my cat's come to stay. I think also we, we, I think there should be a duty to give context when you say, oh yeah, spray foam insulation is crap. You know, everyone's put it up in the, in the rafters and it's rotted all the roofs. Well, I mean, to some some extent, my assumption is is that people do this because it's fast and it's cheap, so profit is high. So it's a great product to make a lot of money. Yeah, uh, that's why it was put in in there in the wrong way. But obviously, if you do the same thing, but you take the time to make sure that there is a ventilation gap, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you probably wouldn't have that problem. So, as you say, Sarah, you can't do every single retrofit completely naturally. You have to have a variety of options and ways of doing things because not every retrofit is going to happen in the same way. So, I think it's a bit of a a bad thing to just say, "Yep, yeah, we've got all these examples; they're terrible." When actually, it's not the actual product itself. It's the reason why it was applied in a certain way that caused the problems. Yeah. And you've got to think about the client's wants and needs as well. You know, I mean, there's one thing what my I personally would want and, you know, recommend. But equally, if you've got a social housing client going, well, I've got 50 houses to do and we can't get them out if they can't decant our tenants and we need a non-invasive floor insulation system, you know, then it you have to talk about these products. So I think I think it's the right thing to do, but like you say, equally raising concerns about things we're concerned about. It's sometimes it's about what's an acceptable compromise, or or where you know maybe there's a product that you mightn't want to sprinkle it on your cornflakes in the morning, but yes. maybe, you can, maybe there's another use for it that is acceptable. Um, you know, uh, and I don't mean to be glib and just to say, well, uh, because I'm not sprinkling on, on my cornflakes, I can I can use whatever the hell I want. It's a question of understanding the risks and and yeah. <laughs> Yeah. God, that's the, the the first sentimental reference to Brexit we've had so far this <laughs> this episode. So late in the day, I was I was just about to ask if there was any uh, advice, Sarah, that you had uh, from the Europeans. Uh, just as you said that, Dan, is there anything that we can, you know, when you were saying about the all the Germans know about TVRs, obviously TRVs, but uh, uh, is there is there anything that we should be looking at and learning from them? I mean, I think we've already learned an awful lot from the Germans with their passive house. I was saying to Dan, I think every everything stems for me. Everything stems from passive house. It's how I've learned about building quality. It's how I've learned about how to do things right. And you don't have to be building to passive house standards to to apply that to everything. 
but I think it also teaches us, I know that that comment about TRVs came from a friend who I worked with 10 years ago and she said, oh, it's weird coming here from Germany because everyone in Germany knows what a TRV is. Nobody here knows what a TRV is. And that just tells you an awful lot about our society and that we don't... What is it? (laughs) What is it? It's a radiator valve. Okay. Thermostatic (laughs) radiator valve. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's got them. Well, most people have got them, but a lot of people don't know how they work or what they do or what they're called. And and I think that's part of the problem is that we don't take an interest really. And I don't know what I don't know what the answer to that is. Whether and we pr- need to practical pop- piece of advice: don't don't leave them always on at maximum because otherwise they start decaying and they get stuck on five. So you need to move them around and close them and open them occasionally. There same you go. Games. Same goes for your your shower as well. We, but- we've got these brilliant ones that my husband bought that are all individually programmable. Oh yeah. And so we can control every room zoned. Uh, which just saves so much money. I just, oh. I think, on this point of the, of the learning from the Europeans, it reminds me of something fascinating. I saw a news story the other day. Uh, it was in response to some of the absolute shite that's being peddled by uh, even the likes of the Daily Telegraph. Um, and I know that you'd, you'd laugh at that at me, me trying to confer respectability on the Telegraph, given given what, what it's become. Um, but on heat pumps specifically, you know, suggesting that heat pumps don't work. Um, and it was a piece talking about uh, the uptake of heat pumps in Norway and how I think, I can't remember the figures, it was enormous. So it's like the majority of homes in Norway are on heat pumps um, because of a decision the Norwegian government took as a major oil producing uh, economy. Strange one. Uh, like a classic example of the the bartender, uh, you know, making a uh, not... Don't not get high mistaken. in your own supply. Exactly. There Go you face, go. Jeff. That's, oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> That wouldn't have worked if 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 uh, Al Pacino was trying to play Norwegian. I don't think. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> very different film. Very different, yeah. Um, but um, the point was that they, from the seventies on, uh, have uh, uh, after the oil crises initially, they they started pushing renewables heavily um, and never stopped when 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 the crises abated and when energy got cheap. Um, but there are cultural differences, and I don't know to what extent these feed into it. Um, you know, I, I've heard this talked about in the context of building regulations here too. That in, in a country like Norway, people they're culturally uh, predisposed to doing things correctly. Can you apply that wholesale or, or lessons from that wholesale to the UK or to Ireland or wherever? I don't know. I, I do think that the messaging from government is not helping in our, in the country because they. I mean, you look in Scotland, I mean, what they're doing there is incredible. And probably in Ireland as well, you know, but I don't I don't hear about that quite so much. They're talking about passive house in their building regulations. And so they never, got, they never got it through though, did they? Well, but it's more the fact that they're trying to, and so social housing providers up there are all just really interested in passive house and low energy buildings and ACB standards and all the rest of it. And it, it's become part of their economy, part of their, you know, we, we talk about in the passive house community saying, oh, there's a big market in Scotland, you know, because they've generated their own market for, for low energy buildings. And you just think, why aren't we doing this here? Yeah. Uh, was, people are opening uh, offices in Scotland. <laughs> you know. I was having that conversation this morning with someone, exactly that one, like the, the MVSI being cast across the border, northwards, obviously. Mm-hmm. And they said to me, it ain't all that, you know. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Like it might look this way, 
and then uh, reeled off a bunch of reasons why. <laughs> the grass I is mean, always greener on the other side, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that's always going to be the case. But I think the point is our government isn't talking about it. They're not talking about anything. You know? Well, no, no, they're, they're actively making it worse. So yeah. This pro-driver agenda when there's never been an anti-driver agenda, this anti-air quality agenda that is being pushed out, like the seeds being sown to to foment revolution against heat pump imposition. Like I think it's uh it's it's really fascinating. Tom Knuckles at uh local home retrofit, he said he was concerned about uh retrofit becoming absorbed into the culture war. And they're based in Glasgow. You know the the epicenter of all this great work. Mm. Uh, not specifically Glasgow people from Edinburgh and elsewhere. We just mean that neck of the woods. Well, on that point, Dan, up. I would just say sorry for cutting you off, uh, but because you're going to move on. Um, yeah. But, um, what we need to do for that is uh, is remind the the resmogs of this world that he that he pumps that the technology is you know what dates from the 1700s. Um, <laughs> so we need somebody, some clever clogs to come out and and produce a. Uh, Victorian effects, even uh, heat pump for uh, that 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 the Victorian cosplay kind of uh, um, you know, elements can can get can get excited about. Yeah, <laughs> we we better wrap up because I think it's we're quite long now, in spite of a late start. So, Sarah, before we say goodbye, and thank you, obviously, for your time. It's really interesting. So you're you're setting up on your own. Yeah, I am. So, Man, Spruce, plug yourself. Bruce Retrofit oh. Consulting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a bit worried about plugging myself too hard because um, I'm, I'm very busy, uh, which is great. I'm very lucky to be in that position. But yes, I'm going to be continuing to write guidance, industry guidance on retrofit. I'm going to be concentrating on domestic retrofit because I think it's a really important topic. And we've talked about all the other benefits of retrofit that there are. And I'm trying to get people to focus on that. Uh, not just carbon, which is great, you know, let's sort climate change, but let's also have better houses and sort out these excess winter deaths, excess summer deaths. And I'm going to be doing some more research as well, hopefully, on domestic retrofit and building performance and all those lovely things. That sounds great. And best of luck with the new venture. But um, I'm just thinking with a name like Spruce Retrofit, I see where you're going with it. I presume it's to do with sprucing up a building and so on, which, yeah. which makes an awful lot of sense. But it immediately makes you think, it makes you think of Howard Hughes. Um, and the spruce goose. <laughs> um, so that would mean that to be true to it, I presume you're only going to take on very large, all wood-based retrofits. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I apologise. <laughs> I don't know who Howard Hughes is. Oh God. Uh, yeah, or American. Um, I guess was he was he a billionaire? He was in 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 the in 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 his, in his time. time he was yeah yeah. Um, oh, see, he um, was a uh, recluse, portrayed as uh, by. Leonardo DiCaprio in the Last Tycoon, I think. No, the Aviator it was called. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. sorry, yeah. The Aviator. Uh, was <laughs> we can we'll leave aside the the, jar, the jars of piss that he that he, <laughs> he that he kept, but he 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 built um, a a large wooden airplane basically with an enormous wingspan, um, which never yeah. flew properly. Uh, yeah, called Bruce Goose. Is it not still the largest ever built? Uh, that can there was it was a sea a seaplane, largest seaplane in the world. I think. A, yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that that's a magnificent way to to close by bringing us back to the beginning where we started, the <laughs> capturing of bodily effluent in temporary containers. Marvelous. Thank you, Jeff, for initiating <laughs> and closing with that. 
It's all right. Yeah. yeah. Counting down from you two. You can rely on me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. So with that uh, mucky ending, uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. No, it's been a real pleasure. Um, thank you very much. It's been great. Could talk for a football day. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, I We definitely could. And obviously, we'll have you back when you've got stuff to shout about. Uh, and if you need any help from the t- technical author of Past 2035 and uh, Carbon Light, well, we've got you, gal. Straight up. Um, and they can people can find you on LinkedIn. The details yeah. are good. They can, they can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. Contact right. details are on there. Okay. Uh, thank you for joining us, everyone. Uh, last things. Join ACAN, join the AECB, join the IGBC. Ladies, check her own space. Subscribe to Passive House Plus magazine and advertise if you can. Talk to us if you want to talk about any of this stuff. Anyone out there, uh, feel free to get in touch. Check Lloyd's Substack. he's always in the show notes and yeah we've got more stuff coming up we've got a few more Lloyd episodes coming up soon and last week's guest Tanya Jennings is we are plotting to uh, develop her own platform with her uh, on Zero Ambitions anything else I feel like I missed something remember positivity yeah yep please five stars reviewers Uh, written review would be great Uh, if you can't be asked fine uh, please give us five star rating. Uh, it is the only rating that the apps care about. Feed the algorithm for us, or don't. Um, we're delighted that you joined us anyway. All right. Uh, I think that's it, Nat. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cheers. Bye. Yes, bye. 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 Big up. We've got to work on a slightly more enthusiastic goodbye. <laughs> we can do another one.